You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 221. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace.com. To try out Squarespace for free, head over to squarespace.com slash lively to get a free 14-day trial. And if you love it and want to move forward with your service, use the code lively at checkout to get 10% off. At the end of this episode, we'll be speaking with Lively Show listener Annette Stepanian of AnnetteStepanian.com about her experience with the service. All right, guys, today I'm speaking to you from lovely, beautiful, wonderful, my favorite place in the world, Lisbon, Portugal. Yes, I love it here, and I'm so excited to be preparing season four for you from this beautiful, beautiful place. Today on the show, we're speaking with Gregorio Avancini. Gregorio is someone who, as Flo would have it, I've actually bumped into three times around the world. The first time I ran into him was in Costa Rica at the Eckhart Tolle Retreat. The second time was in Ibiza at A-Fest, and the third time was in Barcelona through kind of a series of events that were somewhat still related to A-Fest. So as I got to know Gregorio in each of these times, I really didn't have a long, in-depth conversation with him. It would just be these brief encounters of kind of meeting and talking briefly, but in those brief encounters, and even if you don't even talk to him, you literally can feel You can literally feel, it's so crazy, the energy of love, peace, and joy that he emanates. It's truly an unreal experience. It's something that I have rarely encountered in my life, that someone has so much love, peace, and joy emanating from their being. And in Barcelona, after the third time of meeting him, I got to know him a little more and ask him how he became the person and qualities and energy that he is today. Having not known his background, I had no idea what to expect, but his story is incredibly fascinating. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just say that he started not from being the most loving, joyful, peaceful person ever that you would see him if you met him today. He actually started from basically, as he calls it, ego on legs. So he starts from a very egoic, very difficult, very totally different place. I don't want to give too much away. So we'll get into the story of how we got to where he is in a moment. But let me also say, as you guys know, I'm all about the rational and the transrational. We've talked about this in quantum living and how there's this spectrum of pre-rational, rational, and transrational. Well, Dan Harris last week, the news anchor, was amazing. And he's a rationalist dipping his toes into the transrational waters. I just also want to let you guys know, Gregorio, on the other hand, is on the far leading edge of the transrational world. So this interview and point of view is going to be far different from Dan's. And what I love about it is it shows the spectrum of what we're going to be discussing here on The Lively Show in season four. At least that's my feeling because I find myself spanning and learning more from the Dan Harris side of things all the way up into the Gregorio side. And I want to be able to share all of these points of views and all the points in between with you here in season four. So there's a lot to be shared. I hope you love Gregorio's story as much as I do and take all the elements that resonate for you. He has so many little nuggets to share within his story that I hope benefit you as well. Let's go to the show. Gregorio, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my honor. It's truly my honor, Jess. Okay, so let's get started and tell everyone how you got to where you are. 
Okay. The story started when I was two, when my parents divorced. And uh, my mom, when I was four, found this wonderful man. And his name was Fabio. And he became my other paternal figure. I would say the paternal figure because my biological father, I was seeing him once every other week. And he was bringing him just to the zoo, to the Luna Park, just having a lot of fun. So I was seeing him as my best friend. While on the other hand, Fabio was giving me education, was giving me directions, he was teaching me things. So they were, I had two paternal figures. One was biological, one was the one more education driven. And uh, so I was calling him plastic dad or fake dad, depending on uh, on the days, because I didn't feel like calling him dad until the moment that I actually started to call him dad too. And um, and it was super attached to Fabio. And uh, suddenly, when I was 17, one day I woke up with my mom screaming and crying like crazy. And they ran from my bedroom immediately to the living room. And there was Fabio that was having a heart attack. So I saw him on the ground with seizures, shaking like he was literally jumping on the ground. And uh, he had uh, all, all of the seizures. He had the foam coming out from his mouth. He had his, his, the eyes were totally open, but flipped back. So they were totally white. And he, he was shaking like crazy. And I saw a scene like The Exorcist. Was, uh, it, was, it was really, 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 really strong. My mom is a doctor, so she, she knew how to save a human life uh, in case of seizures. And remember this, the most important thing that uh, we should do when we see somebody with a heart attack or any kind of seizures is uh, stick our fingers in the mouth, open the mouth, take out the tongue and hold the tongue. We need to, to stop the, the bite of the teeth with something in order to make sure that they don't take it back. But the reason why we do that, it's uh, because most people choke themselves with their tongue because that is the reaction that happens to the jaw. So my mom knew that, so she tried to open his mouth, but he had such a massive heart attack and my mom has such small fingers that they saw my mom with their broken fingers, with the blood coming out. It was it was literally like a horror movie. And we tried every everything we could to save him. The ambulance arrived and they started to do the electroshock, but uh, nothing worked. And so I, I literally saw Fabio dying in my arms. And that moment threw me to, into a really a spiral of darkness because I had these two figures of Fabio and my biological dad. And Fabio was uh, super healthy, doing yoga 15 years ago, doing soccer, tennis, just good sports and uh, no drinking, no smoking, funny, uh, generous, really, really a wonderful, wonderful angel. And on the other hand, my dad was smoking 60 cigarettes a day. He was drinking wine all the time. He was with different girls uh, <clears throat> doing just bodybuilding. So I had these two paternal figures and one of them was super white and bright. And the other one was, was different. My biological dad was really different. And seeing Fabio dying for me, really, it threw me into um, a feeling of uh, if God exists, is evil. It cannot be uh, a good a good entity that is helping us because this cannot be real and um, and so I had these four years of deep 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 craziness I, I became famous in my entire city like everybody knew me because I was always either the drunkest or the highest I was fighting all the time I was doing crashes with motorbikes and with cars I've been so close to die so many times. I, I mean, I we, we could do a ranking, but uh, in a way that doctors said it's a miracle so many times. I went in coma with alcohol poisoning with 8.8 in my blood 
all the doctors told me, we have no idea you're alive. With this, with this value in your blood, we really can't understand how you can survive to something like that. In that moment, it was really interesting because I woke up that it was inside the RMI, naked. So I, I thought I died. Like, I, I thought it was dead. And I looked at myself naked and I thought, oh my God, it's game over. But then I woke up again. They were my parents close to me. So I understood that that was not game over. But that was one of the many times. Uh, it happened with drugs, it happened with really crazy crashes with motorbikes and cars. And I found myself in so many different hospitals, in police stations around the world, in tribunals, waking up in the street, waking up in beds of totally strangers, girls that I, I didn't really remember anything of. So I had a few years of deep, deep craziness. Why do you think that was how you reacted to Fabio dying? So I think that the main point was a combination of anger. So it was a lot of pain and anger together and uh, and wanting to forget because every week, like I was smoking weed all day in order to really numb myself. And I was uh, in the weekends, I was really drinking so much. And by so much, I mean a bottle of whiskey on Friday and eight pills of ecstasy on Saturday. I mean, that was my regime. And I was forgetting. I think it was a way for me to totally forget, totally to disassociate from a reality that I didn't feel that was right. So I think that, that was the, the starting point. The problem was the fact that uh, when you are 17, 18, 19 in Italy, I think it's the same in most places in the world. But when you are the bad guy, you become uh, like a celebrity. So at the time, being the bad guy, being the one that was fighting in the clubs, uh, that was taking so much drugs and always survive and, and all of these crashes, driving super fast and all of the things that I was doing, I became so popular that uh, I could have any girl I wanted. I was, I had all of the friends that uh, was super, I was super respected from everybody. I was getting the best tables in the clubs. Um, it was, I entered in a cycle that it was really, really hard to be broken because it was not only the anger and the pain and the, they wanted to numb myself, but that position brought me to a place of really getting everything a 17 or 18 years old wants. He wants a lot of friends, he wants a lot of girls, he wants uh, uh, to have everybody loving them and to be the cool guy. And I was really the one. So I, I, I think it was a hard position to step out from. Before you were 17 and before Fabio died, what kind of kid were you before that? Did you make a sudden shift or was this just amplifying something that it had already started? Yeah, that was a skyrocket amplification of what has already started when I was born. Like I've always been super sociable. I've always been uh, bringing people together. My, my my first experience of leadership was when it was and breaking the rules as well was when I was five, because uh, I remember clearly that I've organized a collective escape from the kindergarten. But it was phenomenal. Like We planned that for so long. I had to convince everybody, guys, we need to get out of here. We need to go to California. We need to go to San Diego to this, because I had this, this deck of cards with all of these uh, hot, super hot girls. And I was five. And uh, and it was, uh, we found this Jessica, I still remember that, and she was in San Diego, 21 years old. And I was used to escape from the kindergarten almost weekly. They were, I was always finding new ways to dig holes, to climb from things, to do different things. So they were always coming to pick me up. But it was usually a, a solo or it was bringing one or two kids with me. But that time, that time was a long planning before. And I said to everybody, we need uh, 5,000,000 lire, which is uh, $2.5 dollars. 
and we need a flashlight and we need a few other stuff so everybody got their things together in a few days of preparation and then the day came and I made the climb one after the other one and then it was the last one and then we started running but then they they caught us after probably like one minute because half of the kindergarten was missing and they were all the noisy kids. That's incredible. So you were always kind of the mischievous one, but this took it to a whole new level with the anger. And it sounds like a lot of amplification of ego, which I find so fascinating given your state of being now. So let's keep going with the story. So as you're having this shift and you're getting everything you want, what happens next? So I have these few years in which I don't think it's correct to say having everything you want. I think I was getting everything society told me I should have got. But I mean, I was superficially really happy, but it was not real happiness. It was not the deep happiness that I am now living every single day. Because that was really, as you said, it was an ego, was an ego driven life. So it was a life that was really empty and uh, I was I was satisfying just something that was so shallow that it was I don't think it was really true happiness. So I had these four years of craziness, and then at a certain point, the most beautiful moment of my life happened because I am with Paul, one of my best friends. We are driving back from Spain, and that trip during the summer was the first time in my life that I spent three weeks with just one person that was not my mom or Fabio, and those three weeks brought us so close together. That I felt like, wow, he's like my new brother. I really, really feel so close to Paul right now because we've been through so much during this time. And one of those was one of the craziest drunk moments of my life in in Malaga, where he told me that the entire square of Malaga knew me because it was like crazy, crazy drunk. I have no memories of that. One of the last few days of craziness was that. And um, when we are driving back, I look at Paul and I feel like, wow, he's truly one of my best friends and he doesn't know the most important moment that has happened in my life, which is Fabio's death. Because something that I didn't tell is that uh, everybody knew that Fabio had a heart attack, but nobody knew that they woke up and they ran in the living room and we tried everything and they broke the finger of my mom and he died in my arms. No, Nobody knew that. Because for me, it was so painful that that story is a story that happened. I put it in a box. I made it as if it never happened. And that brought me to also forget 13 years of life with Fabio. I couldn't remember one single sentence he's ever told me. I couldn't remember his face. I couldn't remember anything because for me, every time that we were in a dinner and a friend of my mom who didn't know my situation, they didn't know that they could not mention Fabio. All of my friends knew that that was a chapter of my life that they could never bring up, but my mom's friend didn't. So it happened a few times that uh, some person during the dinner would say, hey, do you remember when Fabio... And for me, Fabio was a shoot in my heart, was immediately seeing him dying with the seizures in my arms. So it was so painful that he brought me to literally forget 13 years of life with him. And um, and so I decided when he was in the car, I really want to share with Paul this story. It's time to bring this up. It's time to open up that scar. It's time to set myself free. And it's time to for him to know what I've been through because this is a way bigger than me and needs to know that. And so I did. And so I said, Paul, I, I would love to share with you a story. And he said, yeah, sure. And, and he started sharing it. But it was so painful because it was also so fresh that I could not even breathe. Let's not even talk about speaking. Like it took me literally 30, 40 minutes to share the story with him, what I share with you in 
two minutes because I, I really could not take air. It was so painful that I was crying nonstop and I was trying to tell him what happened. When I end with the story, he was destroyed. He, was, he looked at me so sad and he looked at me and he said, Greg, I'm so sorry. I, I don't even know what to tell you. And, uh, and I looked at him and I felt so sorry for him, but even more for me. Because in that moment, I felt zero relief. I felt actually a way heavier than I was before. And I felt like this is a scar that is going to stay in my life forever. That image of him dying in my arms will never disappear. And I will not remember anything of him. So that was that was literally my realization. And I felt like I will never share this story ever again. And then and keep on driving. We have these moments of silence. Paul falls asleep. He's a little bit sick and I'm driving. We are in France. In France, every 20, 30 kilometers, you have to stop in the pay tool and you have to throw some coins in order to keep on going in the highway. We had no more money because we finished all the money in drugs. That was the old me that was uh, was doing that every time. And uh, at a certain point in, uh, I think it was Cannes or Nice, I don't remember, but the guy from the pay tool didn't want me to go. While every other guy gave me a ticket that was a, you will pay back when you will be when you will be in Italy, but this guy didn't want me to go. So I was there arguing with this guy, showing him the tickets and say, "Look at these tickets. I need just one more, and then I'm gonna cross the border and go to Italy, and then I can ask money to my parents, and then I can pay." And he was telling me, "No, no, 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 no. You cannot go. If you don't have money, you don't go. Call your mom now. If you have your mom to take care of you, you can call her now." He had this super strong French accent, and I'm there becoming so angry, and I am really close to open the door, punch him, and and leave and open open the gate for myself and leave but that doesn't happen because while i'm arguing with him i hear this girl screaming and crying like crazy and and they turn my head and they saw the car that is coming adjacent on our left in the other pay toolbox and they see this 10 years old probably around 10 years old girl that she's punching with her fist on the on the window and she's bowling she's crying and screaming so hard I look at that and I, I'm so confused. So I, I move my head a little bit more and they saw her father who is driving the car who is having a heart attack. And he's having exactly the same heart attack that I just lived the three hours before describing it to Paul. I see the guy shaking. I see the, the foam coming out from his mouth. I see the eyes flipped back wide. And I had this moment, like I looked at and feel like, Wow, this this is a vision. I mean, th- this cannot be happening. It's it, it's a nightmare. I'm, I'm I'm projecting this, so I look better, and then I turn on my right. I look at Paul to see to see if I am actually dreaming that, like nightmaring that. And I see Paul shocked, frozen. That looks at me literally shocked, and so I feel like, oh my god, <laughs> it's happening again. And I I don't remember if I did one breath or two breaths. I don't remember. It takes just one minute, like one second. I opened the door, I jump out from the door, I went to I went to their car, I opened their door, I take out the, the daughter, I sit in the in, in her spot, I immediately stick my finger in his mount, I open his mount super strongly, I was really fit at the time, I was doing a lot of climbing, I was I was in a really good shape, so I immediately I open his mount with super strength and I take out the tongue and I start holding the tongue. In the moment the guy from the pay tool, the one that didn't want me to go, he arrived there. And he started to give like kind of massage his heart, uh, doing a really bad CPR. So I look at him and say, no, 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 hold the tongue. 
And then I started doing the CPR because I was 21 years old. I had never done any kind of uh, CPR work, but I remember my mom doing that. And just three hours before in my mind. So I just did the right CPR. It was keeping on doing another guy arrived that was helping us to hold the head and to move a little bit his body and to hold him. And at that moment, so many people arrived. There were so many people around the car because they were all the curious that came out from their car, from the waiting be, be behind my car and their car. So we were surrounded by people and they was directing these two people that were helping me and we were trying our best. But the guy from shaking, shaking, shaking and making a lot of noise with his mouth and with his eyes flipped and everything, he started to shake less and less and less and less. And the eyes were slowly closing and the vibration was really slowly fading away. And uh, that was the moment that we all felt. We all felt it's, it's going. So the two guys moved back and they look at me. And they look at him and they really, I really feel his spirit leaving him. I, I, I saw that a few, a few years before with Fabian, they saw that again. I didn't see the spirit, but I really felt his life force leaving him. And in that moment, I look at him and they look around and everybody's looking at me, staring, and they are asking me with their eyes, please tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. You are, you are the one that is directing it. There was no one doctor, no one nurse, nobody that knew anything of heart attack. So it was a, 21 crazy with the with tattoos and the really crazy hair guy directing how to save a, a human being and they failed i was failing i was failing because i i felt like wow it's going and and this is my fault so that moment was uh, i would say as painful as when fabio died because even though i didn't know that person i felt so sad because i felt guilty i felt like i needed to know how to save this human life I needed to have to learn the lesson and they didn't. So I turn and they, I hear the girls screaming and crying so much louder than before. And I have this moment that I feel like, no, this cannot be happening. 21 years old, two people dying in my arms. This, this is not going to happen. So I had this energy that came through me and I hold both my hands together with that massive fist. And I gave it three punches. And that the third one super strong. He did, and he came back. He had uh, his full life force that came back to his body and he started to shake like crazy. He holds my arm entering uh, with his finger in my, in, my, in my arm. I had the blood from, from coming in and we start to shake together. I start to hug him and start to say, you're back, you're back, you're back. No, no worries. And he was looking at me shocked with his eyes super, super open because he had no idea what was happening. He was seeing just a stranger sitting close to him while he was last memory was probably driving the car in the highway so then he saw everybody around it was just calming him down and uh, making him chill and and then the ambulance arrived and that was the moment for me to leave because we were full of hash in the car so i really didn't want to have anything to do with the police so i felt like no no i'm definitely gonna leave from here and that moment everybody took me and they put me in the air it was like a, a scene of a movie the little girl came there and she started to hold me like crazy, crazy. She told me a thank you mix between French and Italian. The guy from the pay tool came there. He hugged me and said, you are here. This ride is on, it is on me. So he opened the gate and let me go without keeping on with the argument that we are, we are having just before. So I'm super grateful of that argument because if he would have let me go, I mean, I would not be able to save that guy. And uh, not saving that guy 
would have not allowed me to save my life because that event was saving his physical life, yes, but he truly saved my future because uh, I, I couldn't see any other ways to overcome what, I, what has happened. And so that moment for me was truly crucial because it gave me faith again in something bigger than me, something that I, I didn't know what, what was. I felt the presence of Fabio. I felt that Fabio sent that man in order to be saved. I felt that there is energy everywhere. I felt, uh, I felt again in peace. In one second, I felt like, wow, there is something that I didn't understand. And now it will become clear. It didn't become clear immediately, but it became clear that there was something bigger. And so I went, I went back to the car. Paul was still frozen inside and he looked at me shocked and he said, wow, wow, did you, did you just save that guy? <laughs> I said, yes, yes, Paul, I did. <laughs> I just did it. I was so proud. It was, I was literally like in a moment because I was still full of ego at the time. I was literally a, a, a ego, a ego walking on legs. I was the ego at the time. I was the embodiment of ego. So I look at him so proud and say, yes, Paul, I did save him. I immediately called my mom and they said, mom, let's talk about Fabio. And she said, what did you just say? Because I never said the name Fabio in four years. And they said, I would like you to tell me something about Fabio. And she, she said, how, how what's happened? How, what is happening? And they said, mom, look, I, I just saved a, a man. So I believe that, I believe that Fabio Zier is sending to me. And uh, I feel him now. I would love you to help me to remember because I don't remember anything. And so since that moment, I start to slowly remember Fabio every day. And now I remember so many things. And now I look at the sky and I can talk with him if I want. I, not, I don't hear his voice, but I feel him. I truly, truly feel him. So I understand now that there is energies everywhere. We are energy. We are everything. And that is just a transition from physical to eternal and it's just coming back to the source. So for me, that now, it's just a magical part of life. Everybody, every time somebody tells me that somebody has died, I don't feel pain from that because I've been through these experiences, proved to many other personal experiences in which I've been so close to die that I've understood that this is just a part of our journey. And it's not only a part, it's actually the pinnacle. The moment that you die, it's a stronger release of physical, I don't I don't know chemi the chemistry behind that, but I know that it's something truly magical. And I feel it's just your life force that says, okay, this body is now not serving me anymore. Let's go back to freedom and let's go to play again with the, all the masters and the, all the amazing people around the world and, and let's come back. So I, I feel that all of these experiences allow me to truly, truly understand the detachment that I have from that, not in not detachment in a way of don't care, but in the fact that it doesn't make me, I don't fear it. I don't fear it for myself and for other people. And at the same time, I'm not looking forward to die. So I want to make this point really clear. I want to live for as long as this life will be, will be here. And I'm super grateful of this life, but I'm not afraid of that because of all of this. I love that. So what happens as you're 21, you've had this streak going for four years of creating this persona, this identity, this ego, seeking all of these identities in things that are destructive. How do you transition after this saving of the life? <laughs> this is really beautiful you're asking me this because it has been a really long journey. So right after this event, this event was August 20, 2008. Right after that, I came back to school. I was studying architecture in Switzerland, and it was the Academy of Architecture of Mendrisio, 
by many is considered the best university for design. Some people say in the world, some people say in Europe, some people ranking like really top universities in the world. And it was so demanding that the first year among 130 students, 57 failed. I was among the one that didn't fail, but I was almost there. And my so I was among the worst students that actually didn't fail. So I was in, the, in that in that team. But the following year, because of a few events that happened towards my first year of undergrad, so a big crash that we did in a highway with my car going to Amsterdam. We did a crazy journey leaving from Switzerland. We went to Amsterdam, driving like 10 hours. We spent eight hours in Amsterdam, then we drove back without even sleeping. To let you understand which kind of personality I was at the time. And my friend was the one that was driving and he crashed the car in the highway. So we woke up doing a crash in the highway. He destroyed my car. And of course, he needed to pay that back because it, this is how it works. And he started to say around that it was a thief, that it was, long story short, he started to say around that it was a thief, which was absolutely not true. I was really honest about all of that. And then I had sex with a girl that was a really hot girl in the university. And she started to speak about the fact that it was a jerk because it's like with her just once. So all the girls went against me, all the guys again. My mom was running to be the mayor of my city. And she was right wing and my old university was left wing. So all of these events combined brought me to be from the most popular kid in elementary school, middle school, high school, and the first year of undergrad. I literally became the one that everybody needed to avoid even to look at. You have no idea how painful has been that year for me. That year for me has been destroyed. I've been destroyed for the entire year because imagine that you arrive at school and every single person that are the ones that uh, until the year before you were going to their house for dinner, they were coming to your place, it was organizing every time events, and they start to not even look at you. I mean, it went fading away. Like at the beginning, people start to not inviting me less and less and less. And, and at the end, like all, all of these things together really brought me to become totally lonely. And I was so proud. I was still full, and full of ego in a way that it was feeling like, if you guys don't come to ask me what has happened, I don't care about your friendship. So that was that was my, my, my point of view. I had one friend and that year was a beautiful gift because that year brought me to become from one of the worst students of my university to become one of the best because I had nothing else to do. Nobody wanted to even talk to me. So, you know, I felt like, okay, I have here some of the best professors in the world that are here sharing their wisdom. Let's go to every single class. Let's go to every first line possible and take all the notes I can and then study, study, study. And that's what I did. So I started to really study hardcore for my second year. And my GPA went from like six point something to eight, almost nine. Like I literally, I had an increase that was truly exponential. This is the first flow, I think, from your story that you started to flow with rather than fight the river. Exactly. I took, I took what was and said, okay, nobody wants to talk to me. Let's, let's just become really good in what we do. And I also loved architecture. So it was actually perfect. But what I think is important here as well is understanding that there was something that I didn't know that really that year brought me to after getting my Fulbright. Because there would have been no way for me to get a Fulbright with the GPA that I had before. And they truly believe that for the commission, when they saw my different year GPA, they saw from the first to the second year, this incredible exponential growth that then was kept during the third year. I think that that has been an important part for me to just pass the first stage and go to the interview for Fulbright. So without that year of loneliness, I would have never been able to go to the Fulbright interview. So I... 
it's it, it has been it has been a really really powerful year for me and after that another really crucial moment has been that my university was asking after two years of undergrad to go to do an internship and then come back to do the last year and that was a really powerful system and i chose to go to australia because first of all my english was in existence i couldn't attend any classes in my second year of undergrad that were in english because i couldn't understand a sentence so I felt like English is the priority right now. So I want, and thank God they did that because it really opened up the, it did open up the doors to the world. So the ranking was English number one. Number two, I want to go to a place where I can surf because they tried surfing during the summer and they really wanted to become a surfer. And then I want to go in an amazing place. Australia was fitting all categories and it was also really far. So it excited me a lot as well. So I took a one-way plane Without the internship set up, most people had already the office and everything said, when I go there, I'm going to find it out. I arrived to Australia and that year became truly the best year of my life. Up, not now, now I had better years after that, but that year up to that moment really was the best year of my life. I, I was able that to reinvent truly myself. Nobody knew me. Nobody knew me as the fighter, as the crazy driver, as the drunk, as the high, as nobody knew me. So I could literally reinvent I was I could choose who I was and they chose totally different from what it was before I didn't choose anymore all the fancy clothes and all the clubbing and all of that I start to follow more the path of the backpackers traveling the world with the bonfire in the beach playing guitar and start to feel all of that freedom all of their happiness all of those layers of creation of that I lived for so many years and they look at them and was feel like yes this is it it just light up a spark in my heart of really feeling like this is what I want. I want to travel the world, chilling and being good. And, and that was really, really crucial because that year, together with meeting Andrea, who is one of my best friends, who is one of the smartest person I know by far, and is also a person who goes to festivals and enjoys surfing. Like he's not just a nerd. That's the point. He's, he was the first person I've ever met that was a combination between really smart and doing a lot of fun stuff for me has always been either or and uh, i was feeling kind of lonely because of that and so he's the one that helped me a lot to see myself so i start to ask him question like what would you change in me and he was saying well I, I don't know and he was telling okay imagine your ideal best friend and imagine me what you will change in me in order to transform in your ideal best friend why did you ask him that because i felt that there was something that he wanted to change I felt it like when I was in Australia and I was looking to all of these people, like all of these big papers, all of these surfers, I was surfing every morning at 5 a.m. with the sunrise. I started to feel such a strong awakening that they felt like, wow, there are so many things in me that are shifting right now. I want to shift even more. I felt this, uh, not urge, but this excitement of uh, really wanted to transform myself because, I mean, I didn't tell you this, but when it, until when I was 21, like before saving that, uh, that human life, I was I was so bad. I was not only destroying myself, I was also super materialistic, super selfish. I was racist. I was violent. I was arrogant. I was jealous. I was really attached to everything. If you were my friend, I would give you my life, but I would pretend at least half of your life back. I was pretending a lot from people. I was literally giving all of myself to friends. But if you were not a friend, you were an enemy. For me, there was no middle way. If you were not in my inner circle, you were an enemy. I was I was doing so many bad things to people around. Like, 
So I know that that was not the real me. It was just the ego. It was just the mental construction. So that is a, that is something that I know that was necessary for me to grow. And I'm really grateful that that has happened. And in the past few weeks, I've been apologized with so many people about what they've done in the past. I call them. I call them to my place. I organize dinners. And they really, I look at them in the eyes and said, I'm so sorry of what I did. You recently did that? Or is that part of the story? Yeah, recently. How's it gone? Oh, it was magical. Like so many people look at me in the eyes and say, Greg, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for this. Like I really felt a, a massive burden that just left them because I was like the bully. So in every school I've been, I was bullying other people. So, you know, it's uh, it's kind of crazy now thinking about which kind of life I'm living today, thinking how much pain I've caused before. And now I'm feeling so grateful that I'm finally away from that mind creation that was bringing me to that place. Okay, so let's go back. So you ask your friend, what would you change about me in order to create your ideal best friend? Yeah, so the first thing he said was, well, you're violent. And they look at him and immediately Mego said, no, I'm not. I protect us. And he said, well, yes, you protect us, but you are the one that puts us in trouble every time. So if you're not out with us, we don't go in any fight. If you go in a fight, because you are there. So you protect us because you have to protect us, but it's not, it's not like that. And I look at him and I felt like, wow, oh my God, you're right. I'm violent. And that for me was, was literally feeling like a mountain falling on me because I felt like, wow, I don't want to be violent. I don't want other people to see me as a violent person. It's, I don't like that. I like to be like the chill dudes that are playing the guitar and with the fire and traveling the world with a backpack and sleeping behind the stars. That's who I want to be. I don't want to be the, the crazy jerk that goes around the clubs fighting. And, and so that was, I love that we're speaking about this point because that has been the hardest thing to change for me. Like to, to become from racist to love every single being and, and also not alive things in the world has been easy because like I went to Australia, I saw that people from all over the world were super cool. So I felt like, why am I racist? And so it disappeared by itself. Almost no effort. That, that was one of the things that I, when I was in Italy, I was in all of this environment of fancy people. And that was the idea of going to Australia immediately shift. To not be attached to material things, same thing. Like just seeing what's possible was easy because seeing a, a new life where material things are not important really brought me to just open up to a whole new life. But with the one of violence was a way harder because it was ingrained in me. It was something so subconscious that I didn't choose. When if somebody was coming against my shoulder in a club, I was turning. If they were not apologizing, if they were looking at me with the with the eyes that were kind of challenging me, I was immediately immediately pushing them. And if they were coming back, I were punching them. Like I I was it was a subconscious reaction of living with my energy in the first chakra, the root chakra, which is the one of survival. So it was super territorial. And for me, it was really based on fight or flight all the time. I was always stepping in the amygdala. And that's why it was hard because uh, it was not something that I was controlling. So it was not only the fighting part. Like my friends told me later on that when it was not, uh, when we were not agreeing about something, I was getting so nervous and so angry that my entire body was start to become red and I had a vein on my throat that was started to pulse in a way that people were getting so scared that even my friends were saying, okay, okay, you're right, you're right. And they were just telling me that it was right because they were get, becoming afraid. 
It's the opposite of who you are now. It kind of reminds me of like Eckhart Tolle and his ego death. I mean, would you say you've had one of those? Mm, I think it has happened like step by step. I don't think it's a, it's a sudden ego death. I think that what has happened is that my ego has been stripped away, like what they say about the onion that peels away the layer one by one, one by one. So I think it's more that. I had one moment that we can definitely talk about in at Burning Man. That is the moment that, that is the second, together with the Fabius death and saving the other man, the other really important moment of my life has been when at Burning Man four years ago, I went between my first and second year of my master. So I was still studying architecture. I was in Michigan. I went to Burning Man with the idea that that would have been like a crazy party in the desert. So I would have just enjoyed myself in the desert with a lot of amazing people and craziness. And uh, that was definitely not the case. Like there was that as well. But what Burning Man really gave me was faith in humanity. I went to Burning Man and I felt like, oh my God, we can change the world. And this is proving the point because when you have thousands of people coming together with their mind, with their hearts, joining for a collective dream, we can really change the world. And so that moment for me was so powerful. And I can tell you what happened specifically the, the morning, which was day by day, we have been hugging, I've been sharing love, I've been total freedom. I, I haven't planned one minute ahead. That was the only time in my life that they literally lived second by second. So I was feeling like hungry. Okay, let's find food. Eating. Now eating. Now I feel hot. Let's go to take a shower. Shower. Just showering. Now let's listen to music. So taking the bicycle and going to music. So I didn't plan literally one minute ahead. And that was for me a crucial reason that brought me to what I'm going to describe in a moment. And the other thing is what it was telling you. It's just I shared and received so much love so openly. I really felt it was born a burning man. Like my first night I arrived, I felt like, okay, I'm back home. I truly belong to this place and this is this is where we were meant to live in. And I don't mean the desert, I don't mean the parties, I mean the brotherhood, sisterhood, love, the sharing, the freedom, and all of these beautiful ethos that Burning Man is based on. The last morning after this uh, crazy, beautiful, amazing, eye-opening week, we had the first night in which for the entire night, the whole camp, which is 15 people, we went together for place to place and we were able to stay together. After an amazing, amazing night at Robotart, which is one of the best sound camp, we went uh, to see the sunrise. And in that moment, something so weird happened because I started to do a stand-up comedy with people literally laying down on the ground crying. Like people were laid down on the ground holding their abdominals. Like it was literally really funny. Every person was like <laughs> crying. And I... The humor that I was having was not my humor. I don't know if you can visualize that, but try to imagine that suddenly now you just become friend like Erica. That you start to make the jokes. It's a random person. Like you start to make jokes, uh, move in a certain way that you've never done before. I was so confused about how are these words coming out of me and how am I moving in this way? And how to, what is this person that I am? I don't know, I, would, I didn't even know the word channeling, but there was something happening in that moment. But that was just the beginning. My friends, after, let's say, 30, 40 minutes, said, okay, Greg, that's it, please. We can't have this anymore. My uh, Our abdominals are hurting, that's it. So some of them went dancing, some of them fell, fell asleep, some of them left, some stayed there. I sat, and they started to look at the sun. And suddenly, from just being focused on the sun... 
it's hard to describe with words if you are not in front of me, but uh, I start to see everything I had in front of me when everything was focused at the same time. So there were people crossing in front of me. I didn't have to focus on their eyes or on their chest or on their belt or on their shoes. I didn't have to focus on the sun. I didn't have to focus on the mountains. I didn't have to focus on the sand. I had like a thousand eyes all together open, focused in the same spot. So everything was focused on the, not 180, but like the the old degree that they could, the my eyes could see in that moment. And that, that literally, like I stand up and say, wow, what's happening? I start to look around, I was scared because that was a really weird, unique feeling that I never felt before. And they start to look around and say, oh my God, this is crazy. So many information were coming in all together. Then I sat back calmly, but it was keeping on going. And I, I was seeing all of these things all together. I don't know if you if you try, like if you focus now just on your phone or on your computer, you can see background, but you can't focus on the background. If you lose the focus on the computer and then you look somewhere in the back, you are now focused maybe on a flower that is in the back or on a pot in the kitchen, whatever it is. You can see the background, but you're not focused. That moment I was literally focused on everything. And that was the visual. At the same time, there were my ears that start to listen, hearing so clearly everything. So I start to feel the music deeply into me, like like when you close your eyes and you just let the music carry you. So that level of depth of connection. And at the same time, I was listening to two conversations. I was literally focused and in two conversations. And it was sometimes entering one conversation and while I was speaking, I was listening to the other conversation and turning and speaking to the other. It was it was crazy. It was like literally I I had access to such a bigger percentage of my brain. I understood how to access to that part that lasted just for three hours. Suddenly, but that was a really, really life changing moment. At the same time, by watching and listening, I was thinking with a precision, a speed, a clarity that I never had even close before reached ever like it was like if i had a mountain made of puzzles and i was taking all the pieces of the puzzle and just creating like all the information were so clear and everything i was thinking about was uh, okay this is the solution community is what is going to change the world community staying together empowering each other understanding that we are all the same that humans are all belonging to the same community of humans of race of species I felt like, okay, so how can we bring this to the world? How can we create a network of the communities all over the world that really will change the game? And so in that moment, all this information started to come like, okay, what do we need? What do we need? Do we need the architects? That was the first question. And they felt like, no, we don't need architects. We need engineers and creative people. You don't need to do five years of architecture in order to be creative. I saw many, many amazing structures of Burning Man that are made by visionaries, artists that hire or they have in the team uh, an engineer and they make it happen. So architect, which was my five years of school, were discarded in one shot and they were gone <laughs> like immediately of so much work of 16 hours a day of work for many years were just discarded. No, it's not discarded because I believe that what I've learned was really to have a point of view that is super broad, which is what architecture gives you is really seeing the world through the lenses of the sociologist and the builder and the one that brings people together. Like, I love the fact that I studied architecture because it allowed me to really open up to a whole new world of possibilities. But anyway, it was um, 
I was thinking about architecture and then I started to think about, okay, what about doctors? We need doctors. Yeah, we need doctors. Which kind? And I started to analyze all the doctors and I was opening all of these brackets. I was thinking, okay, we need surgery. Yeah, we need surgery. We need we need the Eastern medicine. We don't need pharmaceutical. Maybe, yes, some kind of pharmaceutical. And everything was so clear and so fast that at the end, my mind was so hurting me so much because so many information came. And slowly, all of this feeling started to fade away, fade away, fade away until it disappeared. And when it disappeared, it was so hard. I started to cry nonstop, literally nonstop for, I don't know, probably like 20 minutes, half an hour, because I was feeling like, no, how how can I get that back? You know, I didn't go there through years and years of meditation in a cave. I went there with no idea how I did that. And I didn't know to go back. I didn't know what was the road to go back. So wait, there was no drugs or anything that proceeded to start that experience? I took drugs hours and hours before that, but I have a really strong body, so I, I always needed a lot of drugs in order to feel them. In that moment, I, really, I was super sober. Like, I could have called my mom and speak about anything with her. I could have done a test of physics. I was in a really clear space. So there were, for sure, an accumulation of drugs towards the week that uh, for sure has allowed me to open up certain synapses and channels in my brain. So I believe that psychedelics are really helpful to access to a part of the brain that we don't know how to access otherwise, because we live in a society that uh, layered up with a lot of things that are not uh, what reality is. I think it's a lot of fiction. And I believe that psychedelics allows you to actually open up those channels. And so in that moment, I was not high. That is the point that... Uh, I was literally shocked because of that. So yeah, thank you for the question because yeah, I was not. Yeah, did you ever find a way to retrace that opening? I did, uh, I did, but again, it was the use of the medicine, which in that case was ayahuasca. That was two years ago when I went in Colombia. I spent a month in Colombia. I was in the Amazon. I was with the shamans, a lot of beautiful ceremonies. And uh, I had one moment that was another pinnacle moment of my life, which was, wow, this is this is crazy. You're asking me the questions that are really pointing out exactly the most important moments of my life. You you know how to read my soul, Jess. This is, this is phenomenal. Thank you. It's been really powerful because I did several ceremonies, and in every ceremony, rather than having visuals, I was becoming so centered. Like every thought, every feeling, every action were so aligned and I became so in service that everything I was doing was just feeling the call to go to that person and tell them some things and allow them to, to purge and to turn them and to cuddle them. So I became like the helper of the shaman. I, I would not even say the helper because the shaman was always in his hammock, uh, smoking his cigar and playing the guitar. So he was not really taking care of anybody and he was full of ego. So it was not a shaman that was really taking care of the group. So I literally became the one that was going from person to person to help them. And ceremony by ceremony, people were coming to me telling me, thank you so much, you have helped me so much last night. And during the ceremonies, people were coming to me and say, can you please go to help uh, Miriam? She's going through a really hard time. So I I literally was in full service. So I was drinking a lot of medicine and that was allowing me to just be on full service. But during the fourth ceremony, I went to the shaman and they said, before the ceremony, I said I really want to go far. I really, really want to go really far. So can you please give me a lot of medicine? He gave me an amount of medicine, yeah, just that you have no idea. Like, I think that it was something like a liter of ayahuasca. He gave me first a massive, massive bowl of coconut, totally full, that it took me like six or seven sips to finish. 
and they went to lay down and they think I kind of fall asleep, not really sure what happened during the time. But then when I woke up, I, I felt like, okay, I need more. So I went back to him and said, can I have more? He looked at me shocked because that first cup was like four cups already. And he looked at me shocked. He said, really? And I said, yes, please. I really, really want to go. I'm here. I'm still here. I want to go. And so he, he poured the bottom, which was truly mud. So it was so dense and it was all concentrated and I finished it. And then I, the girl close to me started to cry and scream. It was kind of scream laughing with a little bit of crying, but it was mostly actually laughing in a really funny, hysterical way. And my mind immediately told me, okay, go to help. But my heart told me, no, this is your journey. You drank a lot of medicine, go, it's your time. And so I started to walk by myself in the Amazon. It was the sunrise moment, so it was coming all the lights toward the leaves of the Amazon. And after a few minutes of walking, it was really close. They arrived to this beautiful river and they sat on the river. And in that moment, the moment that they described to you to Burning Man came back, not as strong as the first time, but uh, what has been as important as what happened to Burning Man is the fact that uh, I got so much clarity that all the questions that I had were answered within the question. Like I was starting to have a question like, what should they do? Ah, of course. And what about... Ah, of course. Like, you know, I was even starting the question because I knew that I had an open channel in that moment. So I was feeling like, okay, let's ask questions. And every question I was asking, I could not even finish to formulate the question that the answer was coming. In that moment, it was really beautiful because I didn't have a visual of it, but I had a feeling of myself being inside a room. And in this room, there are a lot of windows. And every time I was taking psychedelics, because that has been my journey until then, so until two years ago, I had times in which I was not taking any more the drugs like at the time of Fabio's death. So since 17 until 21, because after 21, I stopped for a few years because those years were cocaine and ecstasy and alcohol. So were drugs just for a totally different reason was just to uh, ego and uh, losing consciousness was totally different. But after when I tried when I tried LSD and they start to experience with ketamine with totally different things, they start to understand how much opening all of these substances can give you if you do them with specific intentions. And so I had that time, which was, I would say, less than two years of research, of really wanting to understand more of what we are, why we are here, what this is all about. And psychedelics were giving me so many of these answers because they were allowing me to open those channels. And I was discovering so many things. I had moments in that I had telepathy. Twice I had full telepathy, one time with a girl, I had telepathy for so many hours because I was able to access to that part and she did as well. So we were like in the perfect symphony. We were looking at each other as we knew exactly what we were thinking sentence by sentence. It was, it was so powerful. Another time I had the strongest pain I could remember and the true just surrendering and transforming in the most pleasure I've ever felt. So like I had all of these experiences and, and they were coming because I was able to activate through the um, psychedelics but during ayahuasca when i drank so much rather than having all of these visions and rather than having all of these crazy superpower what they call in the hindu culture the cities i had this feeling of myself being in a room with all of these windows and i felt like every time that i was taking any substances i was opening the window flying out to discover telepathy or to discover how to turn pain in pleasure or to discover this uh, movement of object or whatever it is but then when the effect was finished, I had this bungee cord that was pulling me back. And then it was back in the room. 
there was still the window that I could look outside from. So I could see outside the window, but I could not experience that. So I could remember that I had telepathy, but I didn't know how to access to that part of me because I reached it through a shortcut. So I didn't know how to arrive there. And the answer that was given in that moment was, okay, there are no more windows. For you, there are no more windows. Now, if you want to get more answers, you need to open the door and walk. And by that, what, what the answer was, treat yourself as good as you can, treat other people as good as you can, and treat this planet as good as you can. And for myself became, I quit smoking, I quit drinking, I became vegan, I became celibate, celibate because I'm waiting for the one. So this is really important. I don't want to become a monk. I'm just waiting for the right person. I don't want to exchange any more energy. I've, I've done enough during the, the years of my teenager time until a few years ago. And I'm just waiting for the one. But that was clear. That was a really clear message was keeping your energy. And when the right one will come, you can create a life together and then treat other people in the best way possible. So it was the development of of compassion, of acceptance, of uh, really looking at people when they behave in ways that they don't agree with, with a more paternal eye. It's, uh, that was not the moment that it was fully awakened, but was the moment that it re-sprouted. And the planet, like I really started to understand how much this planet needs us and uh, how much service I really want to be on. And uh, yeah, so that moment for me was really, really crucial because it allowed me to go in this magical path. So that has been another super crucial moment of my life. I love it. Okay, so one of the things we haven't even talked about is this concept really of flow and how you've been flowing around the world with negative $2,000. Do you want to share that part of the story? Yep, that has happened. So if we go back a little bit, I finished my master in Michigan and I still have money from my Fulbright. I still have money from my being a teaching assistant at the university. So I still have quite a bit of money. And because I'm in this place of really sharing and discovering, I spent all of the money going from gathering to gathering to festival, offering to all of my friends and getting all of the psychedelics. So I'm, I'm in this journey of really discovering. And while I'm doing this research about communities, I'm with the Fulbright doing this research about uh, what communities mean and what they can do for the world. I arrived mm -hmm. to a place that I finish all of those money and I have, I am in San Francisco and San Francisco is so expensive. And at a certain point, I find myself with minus $2,000 in my bank account. And then literally don't know what to do anymore because I'm in this crazy journey. I had my mind that really one, they were saying, you need to finish this journey. You still have a few months left of visa. You need to be here. You can't go back as a, as a loser. Uh, you have to win this game. And so my mind was really telling me, stay here and do this. And my heart was telling me, go to Costa Rica. And I was thinking, why? Why to Costa Rica? And I was in a moment that I was in the car with the, literally minus $2,000 in my bank account. And I was thinking like, wow, I can't even get the avocado plus in the burrito that I was eating every day. Like I was really like, no, this 80 cents more is not okay for now. So I was literally with no money. But in that moment, I felt so much excitement. And that is, I think, one of the things that really has made a major difference in my life compared to most people. I love the unknown. I love the excitement of the adrenaline of the adventure. And in that moment, I felt this adrenaline. I felt this expanding feeling like, uh, wow, think when I will go back home and I will share with all of my friends when I was in San Francisco going couch surfing. And all of this time really made me feel like, uh, okay, this is just an adventure. There is nothing to be afraid of. 
and I imagine myself with my, my, my grandkids on my legs uh, sharing the story. When in San Francisco, I was with minus $2,000 in the bank account with no avocado in the burrito and uh, yeah, really going for this journey. And in that moment, I thought, okay, let's go to Costa Rica. That's it. Let's go for the adventure with no money, actually with minus money. Let's go there and we'll see. And my intention was, let's go there to Envision, which is this amazing festival that will encourage everybody to go. And after Envision, I really want to go in the forest to find myself, like a vision quest. I arrive at Envision, and before even to get in, I'm outside, and I'm there speaking with a couple of friends that they know. And a guy arrived there in his 50s, and he started to talk to me. And after literally a few minutes, he, he tells me, you know, I own a jungle right adjacent to here, and I have 650 acres of land, pristine land, full jungle, with rivers and waterfalls. I look at him and I'm like, no, this cannot be real. Like, it's true. And they look at him and say, can I come? And he said, of course you can come. And I feel like, oh my God. And this guy ended up being the one that teaches workshops about fasting. And they got so fascinated about that. He started telling me that every year he does at least 40 days of fasting. And he started to tell me about Plato and Jesus and Buddha and all of these people that were doing fasting every time in order to clean themselves, in order to get more in their spirit. So I go, to, of course, to his workshop and I decide, okay, after Envision, I'm going to go to his place and do a fasting. He tells me that it's $100 a day. And they tell him that I have no money. And he tells him, it doesn't matter how much money you have, please come. And they tell him, look, I have $50. And he said, yeah, it would be a thousand, but you can give me 50. So he gave me a $950 discount, which was a fairly good discount. And it was not really a discount. I told him when I will have money, we'll give you back. And I did. A few months ago, I went back and I gave him money. So I, during the ceremony, I had my rapé, young Bill, and the, the shaman, she was giving a rapé. And when she arrived in front of me, she looked in my eyes. She stopped and she said, you're a warrior. We need to talk. And they look at her and say, yeah, wow, yes, let's talk. They said, later. So we finished the ceremony and a few hours later, we she comes to me and she said, we are going to Colombia in a couple of weeks. You need to come with us. And I said, oh my God, I would love to go to Colombia. What is this about? And she said, it's a month with indigenous tribes, with all of these amazing shamans, with a lot of gurus and amazing people. You need to come with us. And they look at her and say, oh my God, this is a dream. And I got super excited and said, okay, how much it cost? And she said, it's $2,500. And I said, well, I am right now minus 2000 so I don't really know that fit. And she looked at me, she said, no worries, you need to come. If you have no money, just pay your flight and we'll take care of you. And I look at her, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. I never, I never had a feeling like that, you know, it's of really being taken care in that way. I had a similar feeling when I got my Fulbright because my mind was telling me, don't do that. Because there are three available over all over Italy, it's impossible for you to get it. My my heart was telling me, yes, go for it. So that was kind of what was happening in that moment of really understanding how to be in the heart allows you to enter in this flow of trust, where the, literally the universe conspires in your favor to side coelho. And uh, so she told me to come. At that point, I called my mom and said, "Mom, please." Can I borrow a thousand dollars because I really want to pay my flight and give her at least five hundred dollars because I really really feel that it's important to me to honor at least a minimum of the expenses. My mom accepts, so I do that and I go to Colombia. And the first day I arrive in Colombia, I meet this amazing human being. His name is Felico, and I start to tell him about my thesis, my thesis, which is called the Pristine Movement, 
was based on creating a community of Jedi's that will change the game of the world. So it was a continuation of Burning Man. Like I did my thesis based on Burning Man with a lot of fights with my professor. She wanted to uh, fail me. A lot of different arguments. And at the end, I got a standing ovation from her. So I, I really stayed on my on the route. But I spoke about this thesis with my friend Felico and they became my friend that day. And at the end, he told me, okay, you need to speak at A-Fest. And I said, wow, that sounds beautiful. I love speaking, but what's, what's A-Fest? And she tells me, AFS is an amazing event of game changers. You need to be there and spread this message because uh, they need to hear it and you need them. And I thought, oh, yeah, let's do that. So he sends a message to Vishan, the founder, and Vishan said it's too late to four speakers. The AFS is in one month, so we, we can't make that happen. But we we definitely, definitely can, can have him. The ticket is $3,000, so obviously I am not in a place that I can afford that. And so my friend Felico tells me, it doesn't matter, you need to be there. So please go, I'm going to take care of your ticket, I'm going to take care of your house that you already paid, just pay your flight and you're done. And so I found myself again in the same position of going from Colombia directly, I stop in Italy for like eight hours, and then I take the flight directly to Croatia, and the right to AFEST, which is this phenomenal event of all of these powerful game changers from all over the world with the real goal of improving themselves and changing the world. And they start speaking about my thesis and I had so many people that come to me up to a point that they say, okay, let's build the village, let's do it in Berlin. And I, I have this amazing friend that we bring together and we go to Berlin, we organize a workshop, 25 people come from all over the world and we start to plant the seed to create a community. And I uh, start to speak more and more about this community up to the place that I feel like uh, uh, it doesn't feel good. Uh, I have something that doesn't function here. What is that? And it was my heart that was telling me, no, don't don't go ahead with this. And so I called the group and I said, guys, look, I know this sounds weird, but it doesn't align with me. I don't know what it is. It's my heart. So I don't even know, know how to describe it. It's just my heart that is telling me, go out from it. And they understood, they are really beautiful, I mean, they understood, so I, I left it, and uh, two weeks later, I found myself uh, in Necker Island with, uh, with Richard Branson and uh, with uh, all of the people that were there, and it was literally like a moment that I was in this infinity pool, looking outside, and I was feeling like, how is this possible? How did you get to Necker Island with Richard Branson two weeks later? I spoke with my friend Joanna that they met after Burning Man about the, the pristine movement, the creating this community. And she told me, where do you find the money for that? And they told her, look, money is the last of the problems. Money is the only resource in this planet that we have a way more of what we need. They print them, these pieces of paper. They are not, they are not even existing anymore. They are online. So we have a, a way more of what we need. So money is not a problem. And they told her, I'm going to go to meet Richard Branson and Elon Musk. And she said, of course, Richard is my good friend. And they look and say, yes, I knew that. You see how it works? And they made a big smile. I hug her and say, thank you, John, to be here. And then later on, my friend Nadav, who is one of my biggest brothers, had to come here to Italy to do a vacation together here. And he calls me and he said, look, I'm here with John, who just invited us to Necker for a birthday for a week. And I said, well, I have no money. I would love to come. This sounds like a dream, but they don't want, I have no money. And he said, no, no, of course she will pay for your flight. She told, she already told me that she would take care of your flight. So, okay, so let's do that. So she pays my flight. I found myself in Virgin Gorda in this house that is 
undescribable. Like it's a house that is probably for more than 20 people. We were just in eight with four people serving us with chefs and amazing, amazing place. And the, yeah, I was there with this infinity pool. I'm looking around and feeling like I just met Richard Branson. Yes, how, how is this possible? I look at my friend and I say, wow, how this can be real? And they look at me, he's mine, and he says, because we deserve it. I feel goosebumps just thinking about that moment because it's so true. We do deserve it because we are creating that reality. I put myself in such a full service that to be in that spot was not only an honor, but was something that I really deserved because I, I've been through so much pain. I've been through so many challenges in my life that I told you a few of them. I told you, of course, the strongest one, which is the death of Fabio, but I've been through so many crazy journeys that uh, I know that all of the work that I've done was rewarded in the 2 a.m. And being there was uh, was super powerful. I found myself spinning fire in front of Richard Branson in the night. He came to our place uh, for her birthday. So we were just in 10 people in the dinner. We were having conversation, hugging each other. And I convinced him to do the breath work that they teach, which is called Breath of One. He was really excited of doing that. But then we didn't find time because the day after in Necker, there were all the people from SpaceX, everybody. Yeah, he was excited. He said, yeah, I would love to do that because when he... She, because John introduced me as an architect, and so Richard asked me, so are you still practicing architecture? And they said, no, not really. Now I'm teaching breadwork around the world and hopping from place to place to teach breadwork. And they said, what does that mean? And they start to explain what it is, and they said, wow, well, I would love to experience that. And uh, yeah, we didn't find time, but it will happen. So one day that will happen, and I'm super excited for him because the more powerful you are, the further you can go with the breath. So it's, uh, I'm really excited for people like him to experience the breath work that, that through these years. Uh, I'm glad I've gotten to have that experience myself. It was incredible. Yeah, thank you so much. I, yeah, you, you told me a couple of interesting things about your journey. Yes, that was the journey in Necker. And since then, it kept on going and going. I kept on having literally like always my, I was able to just come back to the zero of the bank account and then a little bit more and people inviting me from place to place telling me, oh, I'm going to give you this money to do this part of the job, which was always community-based. So I was always getting money from people, trusting of what I was doing in order for me to not work in nine to five. That was what was happening. This is the first time I can rationalize what is. There were people that were probably getting the message, giving money to keep on doing what he's doing without even knowing that they didn't tap them. It was crazy. You know, it was, it was like my friends opened a hotel in Morocco and they told me, Greg, we are opening this hotel in Morocco. We would love you to be there participating. And so, wow, that sounds beautiful. And they told me, just give us your dates and give us your passport. We're going to take care of your flight. And this was the crazy part that at AFEST, nobody knew that they had no money in my bank account. I, everybody thought that they spent the $3,000 that everybody spent for the tickets. So they were assuming that you were wealthy, like you were at least uh, living standard life. And they was definitely not. And that kept on going and going and going. And I read The Alchemist. I really felt like, oh my God, you just described my life. Like it's just through a different journey. But I felt that through surrendering, you can just let the flow carry you in a way that it's pure, pure, pure magic. Until the moment that you can also choose different things. Like I arrived to a place that I said, okay, you know what? Now I've been going to many different countries, just trusting, having people hosting me in these amazing mansions and all of this wonderful life. Now I would like actually to choose because I want to be able to say, okay, now I want to go to China for a few months to learn from a Chinese master or whatever he is. And they want to be able to choose that. 
And so in that moment, I opened up to money. And as soon as I opened up, I got my first two clients as a coach. I got a client as an architect. And I, I really started to get abundance in order to keep on going. And the more I opened up and the more I trusted, the more I surrendered, the more excitement I put into the conversation, the better it became. And about excitement, I think it's really the, the crucial point is my life slogan is follow your highest excitement in every single instant of your life. So it's moment by moment. If this doesn't excite me, I'm not going to do it. Doesn't matter what. And if I'm really forced to do that, I need to understand for the next time, what can I do to not do that again? So do I find somebody else that does that for me or should I just not make something in order to transition out of that or whatever it is? Because I'm really living my life as a game, as a dance, as a play that every day needs to be a really fulfilling me. So to break that down, I want to pull apart a few of the things you share there because a lot of people are just hearing this incredible life story and they're like, well, that's great for you, Gregorio, but I'm sitting here in wherever they are listening with whatever circumstances they have. So one of the things that when we've talked about flow on the show before, we talk a lot about frequency and we talk about emotion and what you're saying is so clear. You're saying that emotion of excitement is what guides the actions you take, correct? For sure. Absolutely, yes. That is the main emotion that, that I let my life be driven from, for sure. What about the ego when it tries to say, but this excitement isn't practical? I, I don't think that that is what the ego usually say. I think that the ego doesn't say this is not practical. The ego tries to sell you that something else is more exciting. I think that that is what the ego does. The ego tries to tell you, oh, no, no, it's, um, don't jump from that cliff because that's not exciting. It's not safe. That is what the ego tells you. And the ego tells you it's so much more exciting to be in your safe zone and to stay there because that is what the ego usually does. I mean, the ego is a combination between your past and your future. So it makes assumptions of the future based on what has happened in your past. And it doesn't like changes. Your ego really likes the comfort zone of what is known. On the other hand, your heart, your soul really want adventure, really want to experience. Your soul knows that this is just a, a, a human experience and doesn't matter even if you die, your soul knows that. So your soul wants deep experiences. So I feel that what is important is to be able to tune in with your heart and just get more adventures. And when people tell me, oh, for you, it's easy to listen to your heart because you've been working so much on yourself and all of these uh, vipassanas and dark retreats and all of this medicine in the Amazon and all of these crazy adventures throughout all your life, for you it's easier. And I tell them, I am who I am, of course, because of the journey that I've been through, but what I'm sharing with you is uh, listen to your heart that you don't have to go through what I've been through. Everybody has their heart, so it's just a matter of learning how to listen to it. And for me, how to listen to your heart is actually a way easier of what people think, which is when something feels truly good, that is your heart aligned with your mind. When it doesn't, that is your mind that it is aligned and it wants to take some kind of decision. So in a really simple way, if you argue with a friend and you have this feeling of, oh, actually, it's a month that we're not speaking, I want to call him, I want to call her. And you feel like, no, no, he was so bad with me, he did this, no, he needs to want to be the one that called me and apologize and they need to feel that apology. That is your mind that is going against what your heart wants. And if you would have followed your heart and would have been just following the unconditional love that we all are, you would have called a friend and you would say, look, let's just go over that and let's just chill. Another example could be, could be with the work. 
many people feel like I think it's like 55% of people in America are deeply unsatisfied with their job because they are doing something that they don't love. And most people feel like, uh, okay, my heart doesn't want to do this job. And the message arrives to the mind and the mind says, no, but you know, you have a safe job. Most people don't even have that. You make good money, you have good colleagues, you have clients that rely on you, you have responsibility, and then what your family will think and what your friends, no, 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 let's stay. So what is happening there is that your mind is denying the call from your heart. And I truly believe that your heart, our heart, is the, should be the captain of our life, should be the one that drives the boat, and the mind should be just on service of it. So if the feeling is, leave your job, I don't feel that it should be feeling action. I think is feel before thinking, think before acting. That is something that came a couple of years ago to me. So if your heart is feeling like, okay, let's leave the job, let's pass the ball to the mind and let's see, okay, what do we do to leave the job in a really good way? So to not piss off the clients, to not piss off the friends and the colleagues and all that. So use your mind in your service up to the point that you understand what's the best transition for you. Could be going for, for a world trip or could be finding a new job, whatever it is. So it's using the mind in service. So can you say that statement again? Yeah, it's think before speaking. This is the sentence in Italy, at least. They say think before speaking. I think before that, it's feel before thinking and then think before acting because speaking is, is a part of acting. So I think that's the sequence is feeling. So what feels... And then you can think and act based on your thoughts and that are coming from your feelings. I love that. That's a beautiful summation of what I've been sharing for the last seven years. Thank you for saying it in such a simple sentence, right? Just insert the word intuition for heart. I think for me, I use them rather interchangeably for people so they know I talk about that all the time. Yes, if you can find that guidance there and then execute on it from the left brain or from that that thinking logic place, everything flows. It's just our society has told us that we need to make our decisions based on our logic and based on pro and con lists instead of the right brain and instead of that heart intuition and gut feeling. I, I love how simple you've boiled it down. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you just did the same. You just put it in words that are pure magic. Everything you just shared is absolutely like I was feeling myself speaking to myself in this moment. So I, <laughs> I love everything you just shared. I absolutely agree. It's a combination between the two parts of us, the right and the left brain, the masculine and the feminine, to really do a dance together. Because I think that what is really beautifully explaining the second chapter of the Celestine prophecy, which is uh, we live in a society that is so based on, on science that we forgot that science was born in order for us to answer to questions that we didn't know to answer anymore during the Renaissance and the Protestant reform, which was based on who are we? What are we doing here? What is this all about? And this was why science was born, in order to discover the universe and bring back the answers. But then the more we went into science, the more we forgot the question, up to a point now that uh, the real scientists, I truly believe that they still deeply remember the question, but the ones that are just in their mind, they don't. And so it's an entire society where religion, the new religion is science, and it's a dogma where things are not proven, and if you don't see it with your eyes, it's not provable. And that's why we went further and further from the heart. But now it's, the world is awakening. The world is sending us a lot of vibration, and uh, we are coming together, my dear. It's happening. 
It is. I love it. And what I hope that this show is, especially coming forward into season four, is a bridge so that we can take the science and the spirit and see them as one and have language for the right and the left brain, the head, the heart, and the gut, all to have alignment within a holistic understanding of how the universe, at least to the most accurate story we know to tell at this point in evolution, may be. Mm-hmm. Aho, beautiful, beautifully said. Okay, so here, I have some questions for you. These are practical ones. Knowing your energy, feeling your energy as I have in Costa Rica and here in Spain as well. I would love to know, what is it like to feel as loving as you seem to feel all of the time? It feels true. I feel so aligned. This is what I was telling you before. First of all, thank you for acknowledging that because it's a, it's a proven sign of everything is really going in the best direction ever. It's not uh, anymore, as I was telling you before, the superficial feeling of happiness that society tells you that you should feel. It's the true, deep happiness and truth that you just embody in a mo- in moment by moment. Like every time I go around and I see all of these wonderful people, it just fills my heart because there are places where you met uh, at AFEST or at the Eckhart, uh, Eckhart Retreat. There are places where people are so open to change that those are the moments that I can truly be who I am, which is uh, open and loving and wanted to share, wanted to cuddle, wanted to have fun, wanted to play, wanted to play all the time. And when I am in those moments, because I'm not always in those moments, for me, it's important for you to know that if you meet me here in Italy, when I am surrounded by my old friends that know mostly just the old me, they saw the new me once every few months, twice a year for a week, you know? So they almost don't know the new me. They saw it just through Facebook. So they are still really attached to the old image of me. When I'm here, I am not exactly the same person that I am when I'm at Burning Man, where I'm at AFES, where I'm teaching at the workshops, because here people are not in a place that they can receive that. So I just need to turn a little bit down. I can't hug everybody for as long as I do. You saw for how long I hug people. I I love hugging so much. I think it's one of the most beautiful connections that we can have. I love doing exercise of gratitude with people. I organize mindful dinners. Uh, I organize ceremonies of eye gazing and all of these things. I usually hold hands before having meals in order to, to make a gratitude uh, prayer, sharing. And and when I'm in Italy, I can't do that. People are not in a place that, uh, that they are in a place of receiving it. So I'm respecting the fact that they are where they are in their journey. So... I'm not. So I think it's important for me to share that you can truly embody who you are when the surrounding is truly, truly helping you in that. Otherwise, it becomes a way harder. So you need to really go further and further in the journey. And I know I will be there. And I'm working towards a place that I, I will be able to be the same everywhere because I know that there is a level of understanding of truth that we all can go to in which we will know exactly which are the right words, the right moves, the right amount of hugs or the right amount of whatever is to make feel not only comfortable people, but also inspiring the ones that I'm usually, when I come back to Italy, people always complain about the politics and the jobs that they don't like, the girlfriends that they don't like, they get wasted in the weekend. Like they, they do a life that is really different from the one that I am in right now. And because of that, I, I don't feel as empowered as I am when I am with you guys. So I think it's important that uh, the more we go in a depth of truth, the more we will be able to be and to share who we are with everyone, no matter where they are in the journey. 
That is beautiful. And it, it does explain a lot. Because, yeah, I would wonder, it is what, interesting to think about what would you be like at a mall? <laughs> or if you're just in a totally different setting than where I've actually met you. So do you ever have bad days? Or do you ever have days where your ego comes back and flares up? I mean, I've, I've been working on that so much that I've transformed what, uh, what you would consider bad in seeing always the good behind it. I've been really working towards, uh, okay, what, what is the good in this? Immediately, like immediately, without even spending time in anger, I just look at it and say, okay, what's good? What's the lesson? Immediately. And if you, oh my God, I'm so grateful that I'm learning this lesson. Like, I broke my ankle last year. And when I broke my ankle immediately, and I sprained the other one, I immediately felt like, okay, Perfect. I'm going to stay for a month, chilling, laying down on the bed, reading books, having spent it time with my grandma and having friends coming over like immediately because my mindset has switched in a way that I know that there is always a positive. I know there is always a lesson. I know there is always something bigger than us that I don't see. And I have this proof with Fabio's dad. I know that without his dad, I would have never arrived to where I am today. I now truly feel that he sacrificed his life for me. I truly, truly feel it to a subatomic level. I had the same problem with the, the year after the Fulbright, where without that year of deep, deep sadness, I would never be able to get the Fulbright during Switzerland. I had so many of these proven, proven facts that they know that no matter what happens, it's happening for some reason that uh, we can call it in any way. We can call it destiny. We can call it uh, something bigger. We can call it the flow. We can call it the universe. I know that there is something, quantum quantum physics, like there are so many different aspects of this that I, I think it's just a dance between us creating and us surrendering. And I am in this, in this dance in a way that I don't let external agents to be making me feel sad. There is a beautiful sentence, though, that I really want to share, which is, I don't remember if Cartolle used the word sadness in this case, but I think we can use a lot of words. So let's use sadness and then we can substitute. So he said something like sadness has a place until it has a place. And I think it's crucial because I believe that suppressing sadness, it's absolutely against your own service. So if you feel sad, feel sad. Do feel sad. Go through the emotion. Observe it. Disassociate yourself from the sadness because the more you observe it and you disassociate, the more the sadness will evaporate. But you're not resisting because what you resist persists. It's true. I've been proving that in so many cases of my life. And I think you can substitute sadness with anger, with jealousy, with everything. Like anger has a place until it has a place. So if you still feel angry, keep on feeling angry, but just disassociate and also serve. And the more you do that, the more anger will go, will go, will go up to a place, coming back to my anger. Then now it's not only that they don't punch people anymore or they don't run behind with a baseball bat, which is something that they've done a few times, or they don't find myself in a hospital with my head open from a baseball bat. I now don't get angry. I literally don't get angry. There are a few moments in which my mom is able to raise my heart with. She is. She's the only person that can touch that. But it's really rare, you know, and it's just raising the heartbeat and I'm still not responding badly to her. So I went to a place of deep, deep anger of fighting to a place where I literally don't get angry, but I didn't force against it. I slowly allow it to disappear. And I think this is a crucial part of the development that I have done because it's, I know it's sustainable because it just feels amazing. I've done the same with the stop drinking, with stop smoking. I didn't force it. 
I understood that that was my path during the ayahuasca journey, but then slowly I made it, you know, it was not an effort. And now it's effortless. I love that. So this is actually a perfect segue then. Are there any internal doubts or resistance that you're currently going through? So a doubt that I have is how much should they keep on being in this magical flow of truly playing and enjoying every single second by second by second by second and how much structure I should start putting in my life because I know I'm doing so much, you know, I'm coaching people, I'm teaching breathwork, we are creating a project uh, to bring together refugees and game changers and locals to really create a prototype village to change the game, which is called the project.love, which is amazing, you definitely watch what we're doing, we're going to get a castle now in Italy. I'm doing so many different things and speaking at different events and I'm trying to understand I know that if I will put more structure, if I will be more focused on getting the right people for the marketing and for whatever I need in order to bring my person out there, would be would be beneficial, not for me, but to bring the message more. Because I'm in full service. I really felt this call two years ago in Costa Rica. I felt the call in true service of everything around. So for me, bringing the message around would not for me to be on stage. I could be even with a fake name, with a mask on. I really don't care. I, I had my ego so fulfilled for so many years that now it's truly not about that. It's about I want to spread a message of true compassion, of true love, of true being without needing all the external things. And this, it's not a struggle, but it's kind of the questions that I'm asking myself is how much I should just keep on waking up at the time that I want every single day. I wake up every day without alarm clock and do whatever feels best. Do I want to do the practice of yoga? I don't, meditation or not, or going to, like, I do whatever feels good. I don't have to do anything. And I'm wondering how much putting a structure in this would actually allow things to go better. And at the same time, I don't know if that will take away some of my enjoyment and playfulness. So that is probably the main biggest question that I have within myself. What does your heart say? My heart say keep on playing. And so that's what I'm doing. I could see you having a person to help you put that structure in place so you can stay in your zone of genius. I absolutely agree with you. With this person close to me being the one, because I am constantly meeting new people. I'm constantly creating new things and constantly having new ideas. You have no idea how many business cards I have of people that they never reply to. So if anybody's listening to this, I really, really apologize. I have hundreds of business cards that they never respond to. I never send an email to. Just because it didn't excite me, go back home and write an email. Because I was going back home and there was somebody else to see or something to do or the trees to watch. So what would you tell someone just starting out on this journey? So I would tell truly, truly listen to your heart. And it's a way more simple of what people say. It's what makes you feel good. What truly feels good. Don't let your mind come into that conversation. Put your mind in service when the time comes, so when you truly feel what is, and sometimes you are kind of confused, and that's still okay. Sometimes you don't really know what is the answer, but really listen to your heart, because your heart has all the answers, and start to do adventures. Like, I just came out from an 11 days retreat in a dark room by myself. I was by myself in the dark for 11 days in silence. It was phenomenal, and I was so excited before to do that. That is a life-changing experience. I would not encourage you to do it as long if you are not practicing meditation. So maybe do a vipassana before, go in the jungle, go climbing, go surfing, go skydiving. We are. I'm going to do a retreat in November of 10 days where I really want to bring people to become Jedis. So we're going to do 10 days of fasting, silence, skydiving, 
firewalking, dancing naked around the fire. Not everybody has to do everything. Everybody can choose. But you will see most people will do everything because we are going to create such a safe container that everybody will will do most of the things, really breaking away from fears. Your heart, our heart, doesn't know fear, doesn't know jealousy, doesn't know attachment, doesn't know anything that is negative. Our heart knows that we are God on earth, that we are the manifestation of the divine and we are here to just play. So listen to your heart and go for adventures and enjoy every single day of this life. I am in a place that I wake up every day happier than the day before and they go to sleep happier than the morning, every single day, doesn't matter what has happened. So my encouragement is follow your heart because the more you're able to listen to it, the more happy your life will be. That's beautiful. Gregorio, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your heart with us and your incredible story and your points of view and all of your experiences. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It is such an honor, Jess. Thank you so much for having me here. It's it's a true blessing and uh, I feel that we are all really coming together for a higher purpose and uh, I can see that in you and in all the magic that you are creating with this beautiful audience. And thank you all for listening. I know that you speak a lot, so thank you for the patience too. I just let my heart drive the conversation. So thank you all for listening. And there you have it. Thank you, Gregorio, so much for coming on the show and thank you again for listening. If you want to reach out to Gregorio and send him a message, you can do so over on Instagram or Twitter at Gregorio Avanzini. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, you can find me over at Jess C as in Capri Italy Lively. For show notes for this episode, hop over to JessLively.com slash Gregorio Avanzini. And before I share where I'm headed to next on my trip, let's talk with Lively Show listener Annette Stepanian about her experience with today's sponsor, Squarespace.com. Annette, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Jess, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your business. I am an attorney and I also run my own jewelry line called Confetti by Annette. Sometimes our people are really surprised to hear that I do both, but it all kind of came to be a few years ago. I was practicing law at a big firm for a few years and I just I wanted to find some more joy in what I was doing and so I took a complete leap of faith and I quit my job, had no idea what I was going to do next. And I slowly got into this world of creative entrepreneurs and small businesses and I launched my own jewelry line. And in that process, I met so many other business owners as you do um, when you're in the thick of running your own business and people kept coming to me asking for legal advice. So I saw a gap in the market and I thought, hey, there are these people out there who need access to this information, but don't always have it or don't have it at an affordable price. So recently I launched a legal services business working with creative entrepreneurs and small business owners to help them lay a legal foundation for their business. That's amazing. And what is the website URL? It's my name. It's AnnetteStepanian.com. And why did you choose Squarespace for this adorable law website? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Well, I had worked with different platforms in the past for blogs and for e-commerce, and I really wanted something that fit my aesthetic. And I love Squarespace's different themes that they have. It's just really clean, sleek, modern, and that just naturally and aesthetically I was just drawn to. And also, I didn't want to spend a lot of time building a website. Squarespace is just so easy to use that, I mean, within a few hours, I had my website up and running. One of the things that I love is how your site 
speaks to your ideal client. There are pieces of templates that anyone could have. How did you make sure yours was speaking to your ideal client? Yeah, I mean, you are. You're literally working off of a blank canvas. Uh, I think it was just being really clear on what my brand was. And I'm talking about law, which is especially to a creative community, you know, it's first of all, law is boring to begin with, <laughs> um, you know, and then you're trying to teach it or to explain it to people who are just more creative and would much rather be working on their business than worrying about legal ramifications. So I knew I wanted it to be kind of bright and fun and happy and appro- I wanted it to be approachable. And so I just went about thinking, okay, well, who am I? What's my personality and who am I trying to attract and what would resonate with them? And then with that in mind, created the graphics, I created the photography and the layout. Once I had that in place, the actual implementing it was really simple. What's your favorite thing about Squarespace? It has to just be the ease of use. I mean, honestly, it's so easy. It's so funny because the other day someone um, in a Facebook group commented like, can you design my website for me? Any chance you offer those services? And I just thought that was hilarious and is a real testament to you know, what you can accomplish using Squarespace. I mean, this person actually thought I was a web designer. And I just told them, I was like, you know, before you go out and you spend all this money on getting a website developed, why don't you just give it a shot yourself? Um, See if you can, you know, just play around with it. And I think what's so great is that you can control your website. So as things change, as your business changes, you can tweak your website within a few minutes. So for anyone who's looking to try this out and get started like you've just shared, you can go over to squarespace.com slash lively to get a free 14-day trial. And if you're ready to go forward after you've given it a shot for two weeks, you can get 10% off your service by using the code lively at checkout. It's a great savings for you. It's a great deal overall. And it's a great way to support The Lively Show. Annette, where can people go find you online? They can find me at AnnetteStepanian.com, and that's A-N-N-E-T-T-E-S-T-E-P-A-N-I-A-N.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for having me. And now for a sneak peek. Right now, I am staying in Lisbon, soaking up more of Portugal and going through some fascinating new research and a new concept. I have a feeling I'll be sharing with you guys soon on The Lively Show. And in addition, I've got an awesome new episode coming up for you next week with Aaron Lochter with a new series expanding on the stuff that we started to talk about in the Quantum Living series this May. So stay tuned for that. Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. Today.